Hi, everyone. My name is Jen. I'm Jose. And we are the co-hosts of the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. And today we are kicking off our spring 2021 lineup with Professor Scott H. Decker. And this episode, we'll be speaking with Scott about his career development, as well as some of the ups and downs that accompany such a long and successful career. Scott Decker is Foundation Professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. His main research interests are in gangs, violence, and the criminal justice system. He was founding director of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at ASU, where he implemented the PhD. Prior to that, he served 15 years as chair of the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at University of Missouri-St. Louis, where he oversaw the development and implementation of the PhD program. Scott is a fellow in the American Society of Criminology and the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences. He is the author of 18 books and over 140 scientific articles, including Life in the Gang, Family, Friends, and Violence, Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Frontlines, and Competing for Control, Gangs in the Social Order of Prisons. He was a member of the evaluation team for the Proponte Moss Program in Honduras. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. We're excited to have you. Happy to be here. So for today's episode, we're going to do a few things. First, we're going to start with sort of having Scott reflect back on his career a little bit. Then we're going to ask Scott some questions about some of the successes in his career. And then we're going to bring it home by talking about something that we feel doesn't get talked about enough or sort of has this taboo feeling, and that's failure. And the experiences of failure, what we can learn from our failures. And so we can kick it off with Jen. Thanks, Jose. So Scott, we would like to start kind of at the beginning of your career as a criminologist. And so our first question for you is, what made you decide to pursue a career in criminology? Well, a series of accidents, probably the most honest and accurate of answers that As an undergraduate, I went to small private liberal arts university, DePauw, in Greencastle, Indiana, and they allowed area majors. And I was stuck between sociology major, a philosophy and religion major, a political science major, and decided that since they allowed and encouraged interdisciplinary degrees, you made up your own department and your own curriculum. You had to have faculty sign off on it. And then you would complete an undergraduate thesis. You had to do a special project. And I found two faculty members. My area was social justice. And I wrote how there were 80 pages to write about work release in 1971-72. I don't know, but I wrote quite a long undergraduate thesis on the history of work release, and no evaluations done at the time, but what evaluations might look like. And for my special project, I spent a month at the Indiana Boys School, is the boys' prison, if you will. Mm -hmm. I lived on campus. I lived in the infirmary and had a bedroom there. Fortunately, it was not very busy, but I was assigned to cabin eight. Cabin eight was the only non-aped graded cabin, the boys assigned there were there because they had some form of behavior conduct issues that went beyond the normal. So 
spring of my senior year came and my advisor said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I suppose I'm going to go to graduate school or law school. <laughs> and so I applied to a host of graduate programs and law schools. I got into a few of them and we sat down and I sat down with my advisor and he said, look, you got into Florida State. That's a better program in criminology where there is more jobs and more opportunity and looks like it's going to be a booming area. I would definitely leave that on your list of finalists. I also got a little bit of money. I got $1,000 my first year, and that was a half stipend. The full stipend would have been 2000 but I didn't, didn't make that bar. I did the next year, and I had to pay my own tuition. And so that, that's how I found my way into graduate school. And the first day I walked in and sat in my research methods class, and was captivated by the instructor. Charles Welford was the instructor. He was my mentor throughout graduate school. He remains my mentor these 45 years later. We still talk on the phone regularly. He's still letting me know where I'm not quite got it right and where I might get things better in his own special way, which I'm grateful for. And then looked around my fourth and what was my final year and applied for jobs and had three interviews and one offer. And I was the third choice at the place I got the offer from, Indiana University, Purdue University at Fort Wayne. And it was a relatively new campus. We were so new, we were in trailers. And I was the first full-time faculty member there and we had, by the spring, almost 150 majors. And I looked down the hall, and my colleagues in public administration, I had four colleagues in public administration, and they had a sum total of about 25 students. And so I went to the chair and said, will the next position be a criminologist here? We want to bring some equity to the numbers. And the chair said, oh, no, we really need someone in public emergency services or some, something. And that was when I decided time to move and the UMSL job was open and I went. Wow. What an interesting backstory. I didn't know really any of that about you. I didn't either. But you wanted, you wanted to talk about failure. So there it was, right, right from the start. It's interesting how things have changed. If a school told me now we'll give you a thousand bucks and you have to pay your own tuition, that's pretty much an automatic no for me. <laughs> there weren't many other options. And there were strong substantive reasons for criminology as well. I had two courses as an undergraduate, one in crim and one in corrections. And my undergraduate degree, the largest class I had from my second semester of my sophomore year forward, so two and a half years, largest had 11 students in. And the virtue of that was you couldn't hide. And so I don't want to say that John Locke's second treatise on government was my least favorite book to have read in, as an undergraduate, but it's not a page turner today, nor, nor what was it then, <laughs> but you couldn't hide. And so you needed to have read the material and 
it was common practice. We read Alvin Guldner's Coming Crisis in Western Sociology as junior sociology majors. The instructor would commonly say, Mr. Decker, you're in charge of class today. You wouldn't know before class met, so you had to prepare as if you were going to be the instructor for the day. And that taught me a lot about how to read theory. And each week in my Western philosophy, Western political theory, and Western sociology courses, we ended with trying to integrate what we had read for that week with the prior weeks. And I think mm -hmm. that was a useful thing. And I also, we also had to write. It was presumptive that you would prepare a 20 to 25 page paper. My criminology course, I believe it was, started with a 20 page paper due eight weeks into class. Then you had two weeks to cut it to 10 pages. You had a week to cut it to five. And then you had to make it one page. And then finally, you had to write a paragraph. And I learned a lot about writing. And I'd like to think that some of my classroom style and assignments and expectations are built on what I learned in this funny little liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. I mean, all of those skills, really, that you learned then in undergrad, all of that sounds like it would have been amazing to have known going into grad school. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised at how little people knew about, we had read Durkheim, Suicide, Goffman, Weber, and the original, not a, not Kozer's summary of the theories. <laughs> we read that too, but we read the original theorists. And I, th I think, you know, I still lean on some of what I read of Durkheim as an undergraduate. I think about functionalism and the, and the like. So that was, now if you didn't go to graduate school, I, you were a very well-educated truck driver. Or my, <laughs> my other alternative, had I not gone to graduate school, was I was a tennis instructor. Oh, interesting. Tennis. Which I had done summers. <laughs> Okay. Wow, definitely a different <laughs> career path if you'd gone that way. <laughs> All right, so we've heard a little bit about how you got into grad school, then your process through graduate school. So now thinking more along the lines of when you've been a professor, how have like your colleagues and critics influenced your work and your career? I've really been privileged to be able to play a key role in hiring my colleagues. When I got to UMSL, I was the only one with a PhD and the only one who published in refereed journals. And the dean had been convinced by the department chair that we didn't publish in refereed journals. We wrote final reports for agencies. Then, then the dean would hold my feet up and say, well, what is this Decker guy doing then? Why did you hire him? And it looks like he publishes in refereed journals. And one of the things that my mentors had told me in graduate school was, you know, there are the norms and standards of the university you go to. There's also norms and standards in the discipline that will serve mobility for you if you're interested in moving from somewhere where things maybe don't turn out to be what you thought they would. And so my peers 
were people like Jack Green and Steve Mastrovsky and Tim Bynum and Frank Williams, some of whom I knew in graduate school, most of whom I met at conferences since there was no one at my institution who was involved in, in academic journals. So I became chair. I'm convinced that I lost the election, but the dean made me the chair anyway. And it was one of those meetings the dean wants to see in his office. And those are not words you want to hear as an untenured assistant. You you don't ever want to hear. Yes. So I walked down and saw uh, Bob Bader, a chemist, and quite an accomplished chemist. And he said, Scott, I've got good news for you. And I thought, okay. He said, congratulations. Your tenure and promotion went through. I was tenured and promoted a year early. And he said, and you're now the department chair. Is there a manual? How do you be a department chair? And I only had bad role models. And so I knew I didn't want to do what they did. And the first summer, one of my faculty members, and I was 30, and the next youngest faculty member was in in their mid-40s. And one of the faculty members in his early 50s engaged in a lot of really bizarre behavior and drank in class and just a number of things. And so I get a call from the dean who says, you better fire this person. I said, well, I want to find out more of the, you know, the charges, and I believe they get due process, and we'll see how this goes. And so I had that crisis to deal with, and there was another ending set of crises. And the dean said, well, you're going to get to recruit. And so we advertised in all the ASC and ACJS today, in the sociology journals as well. And the dean said, if you make a good hire, I'll give you another good position for someone else. And if they're good, you'll get more. And as long as you keep making good hires. And so the first person we hired was Richard Wright, and who became my collaborator and longtime colleague. And we still talk on the phone and email every, every once in a while. And I showed the Vita to the dean, and he said, well, this guy's got a degree from Cambridge. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a good place. And the dean said, oh, yeah. And I said, and he works with, you know, top top person, DJ West in in delinquency. And uh, the dean said, and he's interested? And I said, oh, yes, he's interested. He said, because I see you've got another PhD from the Oregon Soch Department, which was a top place for producing criminologists at the time. So Richard came. The dean said, okay, you got another spot. And we hired Pat Jackson from Cal Irvine, and then Rick Rosenfeld. When I presented Rick's Vita to the dean, the dean said, well, wait a minute. This person's got a postdoc from Carnegie Mellon. And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, you're building, you know, you're building quite a good department. Janet Lauritsen, Rob Sampson, student who had done a postdoc at Illinois, was next. Bob Bursick was a few years down the road. And so the ball was rolling. And I think one of the points is that hiring good people produces momentum. It raises the standards. It puts everyone on notice in the department that as well as you might think you were doing, there's a better. And it's what I like about academia and what I like about peer review is I don't like reviewer three who wants all these revisions, right? 
But if it's a way to make your work better, in the end, that's what it's about. And so we were joking before we started about Minshea and Eric Walmer being on a preceding episode, if you will. And I looked at some of it and, and had to chuckle because those are two people I hired right out of graduate school. Eric in St. Louis, who was there a number of years and improved the program by his presence and his, especially his work with students. And Min, who was my first hire in a regular search process and who has run the graduate program at Maryland and in addition to being a tremendous scientist, is also a solid person around who build a good program and a good graduate program. So I was lucky in that I got to pick my own colleagues in many other votes and mm-hmm. did the right thing. But having some ability to pick your colleagues Wow, that was was so interesting. And many of whom I work with. Now, Min and I haven't. Richard Wright and I have done a couple books and a dozen articles. Rick Rosenfeld and I have done all kinds of grants and articles together. Janet Lortz and I have an article. Kimberly and I wrote together. There are all kinds of virtues to being surrounded by uh, good people. Yeah. So, want to move a little bit into the work that you've done. And one of the things that we noticed when we went through your CV was that really early on, you seem to focus your work on policing. And I would say that most people nowadays know you for your gang work. But we saw that you did work on deterrence theory, police community relations. When did you pivot from, and why did you pivot from sort of that policing work and into gangs? When I left graduate school, I had done my dissertation on the 26 city victimization survey data, which had to be coded by hand in the library on uh, Fortran sheets and then keep on. And I really wanted to do work on policing and what was then called police community relations and did an early article that not many people paid attention to, political scientists, public administration, urban hub administration guy, Russell Smith, had found some data that showed percent of police departments that were comprised of African-Americans. And he, we sat down at lunch and sketched out a piece. We could find whether the mayor was African-American, what percent of the city was, city population was African-American. So we did this little note, actually, I don't think it's 10 pages long, that now has been kind of picked up when people are saying, hey, that, that's important stuff. But it came out of the Kerner Commission, which was real for me because I grew up in Chicago and went downtown and saw the Democratic, well, I didn't see the convention. I saw what took out in the park and, and near the convention center. And so I was happily going along doing my work in the 80s. And then we hired Richard Wright, who had done a book with Trevor Bennett on burglars and had the notion that we could find funding to interview active residential burglars. And Richard said, you've done a lot of interviewing, you know St. Louis, this work is going to be perhaps dangerous, but certainly it's going to be challenging and time consuming. Let's work together. 
And so we applied to NIJ for funding and we were turned out. We had promised to find 20 active residential burglars. And the comments came back and everybody said, this is sound in every way, but we don't think you can find 20. We don't think you can find 10. And so nothing like a challenge. And so Richard and I sat down and we had a student in class. Richard was teaching a types of crime class and I was teaching stat. So we said, you know, maybe this student, Dietrich, would work out and he could be a liaison. We weren't going to go into neighborhoods with a sign that said, researchers will pay to talk to burglars. Oh, it's been done, but not by us. That if we had a liaison who could take us between our world and the world of burglars, we'd be in a, in a better position to access and study. So we found 22 or three residential burglars and did a short one or two page interview to resubmit our proposal, which was funded. And just as the no tuition stipend and thousand dollar RA ship sounds odd, the university let us do the grant without indirect. And so $330,000 in direct money, all, not none in indirect, meant there was enough money to do kind of work that we, we really wanted. And I think what's really most notable about burglars on the job, armed robbers in action, life in the gang for their time, was that those were huge samples, 99 in life in the gang, 105 for burglars on the job, and I believe 89 for armed robbers in action. Those are huge samples of active offenders for the time. And it turns out that the student we used as our liaison, Dietrich, who was in a wheelchair, was shot in the back six, seven, eight times by the brother of a guy he testified against who had vowed at the trial to Dietrich, if you testify, we're going to get you. Well, Dietrich testified, the guy went to prison, and they got him. Long convalescence, and Dietrich is quite an interesting character. He now is the diversity counselor at the most expensive, I think it's $32,000, $35,000 a year, Catholic Boys High School in St. Louis. He's had numerous young men, it's all boys, come through his program, work with him, including two who've played in the NBA, one currently plays for the Celtics. So Dietrich and I ended up collaborating on the gang project. And then he came back to work on the robbery project and did some other work with me. And then about five years ago, I got asked by Michael Maltz, who does really, I think, innovative and interesting work, to write a piece about the field ethnographies that people might not know and might not understand. And so I wrote about my relationship with Dietrich. And in most cities, I think race doesn't just have an impact. I think race binds relationships between people and places more than any other single variable. And so Dietrich and I had talked a little bit about race, but I asked him if he would talk a little bit about what it was like to come over to my house and have dinner. He occasionally would see one of my children play at a high school athletic competition. We traveled to Washington together for conferences. 
I got him upgraded. Wheelchairs don't fit on airplanes. I got him upgraded to first class. And so we boarded ahead of everybody, and then they moved his wheelchair to the back and brought him a drink. He thought it was a great deal that someone would bring you a scotch on the airplane. He was sitting there with this big grin on his face. And I said, Deepak, what on earth are you smiling about like that? He said, look, here I am in first class. And Senator Kit Bond had gotten on the plane and said hello. Joan Kelly Horn, who was in the House of Representatives, had stopped and introduced herself, both people I knew. And Dietrich said, nobody looks at me and says, there's a black guy in a wheelchair. There's a black guy who must have been in doing the wrong thing. All they see is, here's a black guy in a suit sitting in first class with his colleague. So Dietrich taught me a lot about what it was like for him and the challenges he faced. And as much as we traveled together, I learned firsthand there may be ADA accommodations for some sidewalks and some doors may open the right way, but we got a long way to go. And so that's kind of my long-winded answer to how I got in the field research and, and how I pivoted. And then, you know, the premise was always that access was so hard and you couldn't find access offenders and my answer to that is always if you ask you can find a way and your mentor my former student David Pyrus and I had a small grant from Google Ideas which we used to do interviews in a gang sort of reintegration project Father Boyle's project in Los Angeles homeboys and to do interviews with probationers and parolees and to do some outreach in Cleveland with individuals that I've known for a long time. And Richard Wright, from whom I learned a lot about writing, used to say that things are hidden in plain sight, that people don't see because they're not looking for the things that they should be looking for. And so we did this wonderful little methods piece, hidden in plain sight, finding active residential burglars. The project gained a reputation in the community of such that we had volunteers. And if you could imagine someone walking into the provost's office at your university and approaching the administrative assistant and looking him in the eye and saying, hello, I'm an armed robber and I'm here to be interviewed. <laughs> Fortunately, people knew what we were up to and they called our department's administrative assistant who got Richard or I over there in a hurry to escort this young man campus. There are many stories to that process. Yeah, that's so funny. I can't even imagine that happening today. I mean, that's good that they knew what you were doing, but... Yeah. yeah, and certainly from the time we started in the very early 90s till 10 years ago, the IRB changed dramatically. And, yeah. you know, we paid people to participate. And the university said, well, you, you can't give out money unless you have a, a social security number. <laughs> and, of course, half these guys didn't have a social security And many of them who did probably didn't remember. How times have changed. <laughs> Your yes. career history is so fascinating. I like the stories. The stories are Light, so cool. Lightweight saying I'm old, I suppose. 
we might have to introduce a new a new podcast segment, Story Time with Scott Decker. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I think it's a danger that qualitative work work with at times is that the stories become bigger than the substance. And you know, the project David and I wrapped up the data collection anyway, because analysis is ongoing for competing for control, the interviews in the Texas prison. Those folks, the interviewers there who went in, couple, especially a couple of the young women who were there almost every night, saw things and heard things and have stories that would, would take years to tell. The question always is, is there an organizing scheme? Is there a theory that contains these observations and looks at the observations that share things in common and then the observations that diverge from those common observations. Because, yeah, sure, there's a lot of interesting stories. And I don't know if it was Richard or myself who used to say, we're interesting at cocktail parties because we have stories to tell. But quite frankly, stories don't pass me anyway alone without a theory, without a method, without some comparative scheme. And Jose, you know this from doing the qualitative work in the coding you're doing. Without some organizational scheme, they're just interesting anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. Yeah. And something you're still doing right now, right, Jose? Trying to figure out your overarching. Yeah. So right now I'm like knee deep in the data. and So figuring out right now, like right in the middle of figuring out. So what's my theoretical framework for all of this? Like what's going to guide? you know, this work right now. And I have a few ideas. Hopefully they pan out. We'll see. Yeah. That's the process though. That process of coming up with the overarching organizing themes. And when we were in the pre-write, Richard Wright would put his hands behind his back and walk that you could walk a big rectangle in the hallways on the fifth floor. And he'd walk around thinking and thinking then we'd sit down and he'd say, I think this is it. And then he'd say, no, that's not it at all. We gotta do something different. And it took, and he gets all credit for that organizing scheme, especially for burglars on the job, the six or seven steps in committing a burglar. You gotta get a motive, you gotta find the target, you gotta get in, you gotta search, you gotta get out, you gotta get rid of the goods. And now it just makes such sense, but there was a real struggle to get that organizing schema down. But once you do, then things can start to move. All right, so let's switch topics slightly and start to get into more of your success stories. So as with every career, so thinking more broadly than academia even, there are highs and lows. And as we heard in your introduction, you know, your career has been marked by, you know, quite a bit of success. You've had You've published 18 books and over 140 empirical articles. You've received, by looking at your CV, more than 30 grants. Seems like more than that. You've participated in both qualitative ethnographic work and primary quantitative data collection. So, you know, your career is pretty well-rounded. So based on these, like, cumulative numbers, you know, it's been successful. But we're curious how you yourself would define success for your career. Me, that definition has evolved in the early, and maybe that's how these careers go. In the early days, success for me was more about my own work 
being successful, getting published in good journals. There was no Google Scholar, so you could trundle on over to the library, and we had a librarian in St. Louis who had citation counts from select journals. But for me, and I think you learn this if you're a chair or a director or a dean of a program, getting the resources and putting other people in a position to succeed is also a measure of your success. Yeah, I had the good fortune to be a chair in St. Louis and a director at ASU in departments that, in the case of UPSL, had no graduate, didn't have a graduate course, much less a master's or a PhD. And at ASU had a, a master's degree with 17 or 18 students that was chair director at times for both of those programs when in St. Louis it took 10 or 12 years to build the department and then go forward with the PhD. And at ASU, I had a, a list of here's the things I want to do if anybody ever calls and says, we'd like you to be a director, here's what it would take. And you should know the first thing on my ASU list was Cassie Spahn. We needed her for all kinds of reasons, but in particular, her work in developing a graduate program at Nebraska-Omaha, her reputation and standing in the field, and the work that she does is so careful. So success over the career, and this is probably true of the life course, generally inside and outside of academia, though you could test it, is early focused on self, later focused on other people. That list that you enumerated doesn't include perhaps the thing that I'm proudest of, and that's the work that I've done with graduate and undergraduate students over the years. I've published with 42 different students and with the recent article in Terrorism and Political Violence, that makes it 42. I've been on 24 dissertation committees, aired a, a number of them, about a little less than half of them. And I recently got to vote when one of the privileges of old age is you get to mail your ballot in, even in Missouri. There's a list of judges that you be retained. And one of the judges on the list to be retained was a student of mine who struggled mightily in my class. And I think it's fair to say that their writing had a long way to go. And so often you'll say to a student, this isn't very good, it needs a lot of work. And they'll say, eh, I'll take a C. Or they'll say, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to take you again. And this student said, I want to do it right. And I want to do it so that I could have an A, and I want to go to law school, and I want to be a judge. And this was a young African-American woman who'd gone through the public schools in St. Louis, which have had their struggles through the years. And she said, I know it's a lot of hard work, but I'm willing to do it until I do it right. And I said, I got all the time in the world to work with you. And a variety of other people played a larger role than I did. But those are those are the moments, I think, when you look back. I'm proud of my books, and as I'm reminded by members of my family, you don't get a discount at the grocery store or the gas station, just published a new book, or if you've had something cited a thousand times. Nobody cares but you. 
And there's so based on you know this discussion that we're having on, on success, and you you told us a little bit about some of the success you've had as a mentor to students. As an academic, do you have a few things? So could you give us a few examples of things that you would consider your greatest successes? Like, like is there a, a specific article or, or one book or something that Scott Decker would say? Like, this is what I'm most proud of. That's after my family and all that family stuff. <laughs> yes. I think Life in the Game is probably the book for which I'm best known. It captured that field work. It came at a time when there was not much gang work being done by academics. I had a funny relationship with Malcolm Klein, who is about 20 years my senior and was in the gang world 15, 20 years before me. I used to joke that when I had an incoming call in my office and it came from the 213 area code, I knew it was Matt Klein calling to say what a dumb thing I had written in a book or an article. <laughs> and I'd pick up the phone and I'd say, hello? And he'd say, Decker, Matt Klein, you're wrong again. <laughs> and he would proceed for about 20 minutes, one of the smartest people I knew, and a very different style. Jim Short, who unfortunately passed away in the last year and a half or two, one of the finest gentlemen I've ever known. And as a person could tell you, he took issue with my depiction of the history of gang research. And he said, oh, you've got two things out of place here. And here's why. And at the end of him telling me about that, better about the book, despite the fact he told me that I had made some errors in it. So I, I think life in the gang. You know, I also am really proud of the things that I've published with you know, sometimes, and especially in the last 10 or 12 years of my career, I've been the caboose, you know, the last author, because it frankly doesn't make much difference to me where I am in the, in the author hierarchy list of names, and it does, students, and especially if they've taken the lead on things. You know, many of my collaborations with your mentor, David Pyrus, are things that I'm extremely proud of. And I think, you know, our collective work, some of it he's done without me and some of it I've done without him, although more the former than the latter, on desistance and disengagement, I think has been a contribution to the broader crim literature that was needed and pushed field and practice away from this fixed image of a transitional period in life that never changes and brought some reality to that transitional period and described it as a transition between two states. There are those things. I was on a prospectus defense two weeks ago and was really proud of the student because they, in their literature review, they criticized things I'd written. And I think that's you know, progress comes from criticism and reintegration and recreating prior work. And I was really proud of the student. Yeah, that takes a lot to critique someone that is your direct professor. <laughs> she, was, she was confident and competent. Yeah, that's that great. Right. 
Yeah, and it's also good to be able to accept criticism, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like there'd be other people in your position that might not take too kindly to someone, especially a student, so critiquing their work. Yeah, if you're right, if it gets critiqued, if it's any good, if it's worth paying attention to, if nobody criticizes it, then, then that's a Descartes, right? That's logic. That's not empirical. Yeah. All right. So, Jose and I know, and we've talked about this too, Scott, that you've given a colloquium or a talk on the topic of failure. And this is something that we think it's really important to talk about because, as Jose noted at the beginning of this recording, this episode, that it's kind of taboo. And, you know, as a topic, not just in academia, but even like in life, some of the things that didn't go as planned or things that you consider failures. And so we want to talk to someone who's been incredibly successful by most people's standards about their failures or their things that didn't go according to the plan that they had. And so we want to start with this broad question of why do you think it's important to recognize or discuss or share failures? I think failure is the modal outcome for most academics. I'll I'll point to an article that got rejected, no, and a number of places, three or four good journals, top journals, of which at least one of the other authors and I are convinced were wrong in their criticism. No amount of convincing was going to make that the case. And, you know, rejection and having things fail, and rejection is a failure of some sort, brings with it the opportunity to improve. Hopefully there are critiques that are constructive and can provide additional ways, paths forward. But criminology, the journal, will go a year without accepting things upon initial submission. And one of my former colleagues at ASU happened to be one of those people who twice had things accepted at the initial submission. And that's extremely rare. That's 1%, less than 1% of what appears in most of us regard as the flagship journal in our field. For all of its appearances as a collegial place, the university can sometimes have a vicious side to it. And I think people need to have tough, thick skin. If you're going to be an administrator, that's certainly you need to have thick skin, you need to have an alternative plan, and be prepared to succeed, but also know that, and these all are platitudes, because I hate it when an article gets, or gets an R&R that can't be earned, when a grant doesn't get funded. And I think the area of external funding is one which doesn't get enough attention and training and mentoring for students and junior colleagues. And the notion is, We'll throw you in the mix and, you know, go get funded, sink or swim. And there's a lot of sinking that goes on in some careers. In fact, I think for tenure and and promotion, because there's not enough mentoring along the way, bringing junior people on to grants, graduate students, not just to do the work, but to see the process. You know, we talked about IRBs earlier, and I think the IRB at ASU is eminently reasonable 
and I found them to be good people. And if I ever had a question, I'd pick my paperwork up and I'd walk on over to the IRB office and I'd sit down with them and they would take me through and show me what needed to be changed and how and why. But it, it's a dead end writing grants for many people. They're in the wrong area or they lack the resources around them or the peaks are already all taken in that funding area or the opportunities learn more about funding opportunities. The competing for control, the Texas prison study for which we got $848,000 from the National Institute of Justice. And David and I each threw in some of our own research funds and passed up on taking summer salary. So we, we probably invested a million by the time all was said and done. That got funded in part because I was at NIJ presenting a final project two years before, had lunch with the director who said, you know, you do all this good work in, game, in the gang area. What we really want is a study of gangs in prison and then what happens when they get out. And I said, we can do that. And then that night I called David and Pyrus and said, we can do that, right? And he, he was at Sam Houston at the time. And he said, yeah, there's a, I'm looking out my window. There's a prison right outside my window. And we have good relationships. And all that said, it took a year. But the amount of time and the opportunities to make successful grants, I think, is not well appreciated. And, you know, what's happened is universities can't run without the indirect. That's why it goes up so frequently. And they also need support for students. And not uncommon, your doctoral students are an expensive lot. Not uncommon for universities to charge a different rate for student support on grants than they actually pay. I know a number of universities that in grants bill out a doctoral student at $75,000 a year, which includes out-of-state tuition, even if the student grew up in the president. It's an expensive proposition, and we're all competing or smaller and smaller pots of money. So if you're in your office and the phone rings and the person on the other end of the line says, this is the CEO of Google Ideas and I want to send you a check to do research, where should I send it? That's really the exception in your career. You know, I often thought to myself and said to colleagues, the very worst feedback you can get on a paper is a faculty member who says, oh, it was great. Because what that means is they didn't read it. And what you want are the kind of feedback you get from people who are kind with your work. And, you know, when I was back in St. Louis, Richard Wright was that kind of person. Rick Rosenfeld was certainly that kind of person. Uh, Dave Curry, to a fault, would spend more time on your work than his own work, and not to his credit in the, in the long run. So having colleagues who create an atmosphere of trust where their criticisms are things that you can deal with, I think is important. That's one of the things that when we send students out on job interviews, I don't think we tell them much about. Look for the atmosphere, an atmosphere where people offer honest and straightforward critiques of each other's work. And I, I felt this way at, also I felt this way at ASU, if I got feedback from my colleagues there before I sent 
a manuscript out for review at CRIM or JRCB or JQC or JQ or any of the top journals, it's like I already had a set of reviews and the paper was already improved. And we had uh, Bob Bursick, who edited Criminology for all those years, on the floor as well. And Bob also was very giving of, of, of his time. So you can reduce your odds of failure, but you're going to have to take criticism along the way. But peer review is what we're built on. Yeah, it's interesting to think about when I first decided that academia might be what I wanted to do. One of the first pieces of advice, or maybe a warning is probably more, more like it, was that I was going to need to have really thick skin because people were going to criticize my work. And someone, I can't remember what professor, was talking to us about this. And they mentioned if I were to put all of my rejections on my CV, or if I was just to make a CV of all of my rejections, it'd be two to three times as long as my actual CV with my publications. And, and that's kind of what you can expect too, if this is what you plan on doing. But honestly, I've, that was, what am I, third year now? Yes. So this was almost five years ago, and I don't think I've really heard too much about this until now that we're talking to you about it. Yeah, it's not talked about very often. We'd like to think that those on our beaters just got accepted the first time. Isn't that but, what everyone wants to think? <laughs> yeah, the reality is. And papers are made better by critics. Yes. And the, the journals where you get two-sentence reviews, those don't help you. And frankly, they can give you the false impression that everything's fine. Yeah. yeah. So now that we've sort of set the tone, Scott, could you give us one or two examples of some of maybe the more impactful or bigger failures that you experienced in your career? There's a book I didn't write that I wish I had. We had received NIJ funding to do during the time that Duff, the drug use forecasting, then the it became Adam when the acronym was changed. We got a grant to add an addendum to the interviews that were done and included a urine drop, a voluntary urine drop, nothing's voluntary, in jail that the IRB declined to require signed consent for 20 some years ago. And we had uh, data on uh, methods of acquisition of the gun, patterns of disposal, desired guns and gun use legal and, and otherwise from about 8,000 arrestees within 24 hours of being arrested. And I had the chapters outlined and I had the first two written and then my responsibilities as an administrator, as a department chair at ASU stepped in and that one is still sitting on a, in a file cabinet somewhere. I don't think that's that's going to get. The other one would be project I did with uh, David Curry. We evaluated Safe Future. It was a gang prevention and intervention grant. 
St. Louis was one of the six cities that was selected for the money. They got, it's out here because I'm making progress on it. Uh, it was one of six cities that got $1.4 million a year for five years. So $7 million, comprehensive, targeted in a narrow geographic area. There had to be some matching of non-intervention areas. I mean, everything you would ask for in funding. You know, you get funding for a program. It takes a year to get the program up and running. Well, this gave you a planning year. Things change. Partners drop in and drop out. And so David and I did the outcome analysis. And so here's the short version of 350 pages. The control groups, youth in the control groups, compared to youth who lived in the target area and got program services had lower rates of delinquency, lower rates of gang joining, lower rates of drug use, higher school participation and completion rates, better relationships with their parents, and were less likely to appear in the juvenile court than the kids who got $7 million of 450 kids <laughs> worth of services. And we wrote the final report and sent it to OJJDP. They have yet to release it. They have yet to say that it can be released, although I think at this point in time, it probably would be released. But that's a book that should be told because here's all the things that were lined up to go in the right direction in a city St. Louis is going to average somewhere around 70 murders per 100,000 this year. The U.S. is still down in the six or seven range. Cities like Chicago that struggle with homicide are in the 20s. This is a city that needed that program. And when the mayor found out about the final report, he pulled me aside and he said, can't you do something about this? And I said, no, Your Honor, that's not what we do. He said, we're never going to get money again for an anti-gang program. But a series of things went wrong. There was a mayoral election between the time the grant was submitted and awarded. The new mayor said, we're not doing any of this touchy-feely stuff. The new chief said, we're not going to take federal grants because the previous chief got in trouble because they thought there was mismanagement of the money. So that's a story of failure that I think needs to be told for sites that would say, all we need is enough money. All we need is targeted. All we need is comprehensive. Because those things alone, there's some other organizational inertia and glue, people that are going to work together, that has to happen. The most successful gang intervention program in the target area took place in the basement of a church. And the pastor came to us and said, after about a year, I'm not going to let your group meet in the basement of the church anymore. And the woman who ran the project said, Pastor, why, why? They're doing good things. These are youth who need help, and they're getting that help here. And the pastor said, some of the congregants are afraid to come in and out of the church. Many of them have moved to the suburbs. We can't afford to lose anybody else. And so that ended the most successful gang intervention program. But those are, those are two things, you know, in their books and their academic things. There's people I wish we could have had a chance to hire, but we've done pretty well. People ask me how I feel 
having left UMSL, well, nobody has a bigger stake in UMSL continuing to do well than me. I want to continue to be a strong program. They still recruit really good faculty. They keep senior people. And I think for ASU, I hope they continue to be strong and improve and hire good young criminologists who are being well-trained at very good state school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Scott, one of our goals for this podcast is to discuss not just research, but also teaching and mentorship. And we haven't really done this so far. And so we're curious for you if there's anything that didn't go as planned in regards to being an advisor or a professor or something else along those lines. I think one of the mistakes I made, and I suspect others make it, is to think that Everybody wants to be like me. There's nothing better than being a college professor. You know, the, the sort of the myth is you get to make your own schedule and you come and go and you have more flexibility. And There's some truth to that, but you're up pretty late if you're out during the day or heading out to class or doing an extra class. So I think that's the first kind of mistake I made was the assumption that everybody wanted to be a, a college professor. And uh, most students wisely and fortunately feel that there are other things that they would like to do. I, I think especially early in my career, tried to infuse more liberal arts and humanities into my courses uh, than probably should have been the case. The first course I ever taught was a statistics methods course at the University of North Florida before it was a full-fledged university. And they had a cohort of officers from the Jacksonville Police Department. And so I walked in the first night, I think I might have been 24. I was certainly much younger than everybody in the classroom, and all 40 or 50 of the students were in full uniform with their guns. And I was, uh, you know, suburban guy, not used to seeing guns around at that time. And I began the night with a lecture about Kuhn's scientific revolutions and how knowledge was created. And I thought, boy, this was really a great philosophy of science. This was really a great lecture. And I got a call the next morning from the program coordinator who said, most of the students didn't understand a word you said. And could you use more examples and maybe get it down to something concrete and not make it a philosophy class. And I thought, well, this is what they need. They're out with the concrete world every day. <laughs> so that, that was a good lesson that led me to retool the class and hopefully come a little closer. And, you know, students disagreed with things I said. And the Daniel Moynihan quote was something I tried to emulate and then later gave credit. There's only one set of facts. We can all have our own opinion about those facts. There's only one set of facts. And this sort of alternate reality business when it comes to crime rates or police behavior or offender behavior or the impact of prison or reentry, I think is worth reiterating. Something just struck me about failure and one of my favorite topics. And to go back to it, you know, there are a number of eminent criminologists, 
criminologists who are ASC fellows, which is a mark of distinction, who failed their doctoral. And a couple of them are quite vocal and public about it. I know a handful of students from, oh, two handful, the doctoral programs I've taught in, who failed their doctoral exams in one way, shape, or another, and have gone on to have just great careers. And so, you know, some of that says we don't measure success very well on our end, if, if, that, if that's what happens. But it's also the case in you. Some of these people may have outed themselves. I won't. But some of them out themselves on Twitter and say, you know, don't get down. I, I fail. But I, the other things about teaching that surprised me were how, for how many students it was a real chore to sit through class and not just, you know, my own lectures, but other faculty lectures. They would rather be anywhere else than, than in the classroom. And Education without waxing too philosophical provides so many opportunities. It provides opportunities for relationships with people that you may or may not have have ever met or people very different from you in a variety of ways. It exposes you to new ideas. Somehow I went to a crazy high school and I had a course in semantics and the application of language as a high school senior. And much of that, of what I learned, I continue to carry with me about the use of language. There's a wonderful book by a mathematician called Paulus called Innumeracy, and it's people's inability to use mostly the right denominator, but to use numbers correctly. And it's an approachable book. It's a book that was written for the general public. And, you know, there was a time when I did more statistical work on my own, that time has passed and passed some time ago. In part, our students are so skilled these days and can run circles around whatever I can do now or, or used to do. But I, I think it's important to keep in mind, and one of the things that all my students get, and I would hope that David Pyrus would remember, is what's the denominator? That none of these numbers make much sense without a denominator. And one only need listen to political rhetoric, and, and now's the time when, you know, maybe we're running away or would like to run away from political rhetoric. How many new cases of COVID are there a day? Compared to what? What's the right? Now, we might be in conflict about what the right denominator is. Is it the age-eligible population? Is it for, we want to do age-specific groups? Is it people in a region? Is it a lot of ways to parse the denominator? Without a denominator, one of the things that I think looking at the COVID coverage is the general public now knows what a moving average is. Mm -hmm. And that was not the case probably nine months or, or 10 months ago. I hear moving average, my daughter, who did a very nice job as an undergraduate business major, and that was it, educationally, talked about moving averages when we spoke with her over the weekend. And I thought, all right, science has, you know, entered her world. And, you know, I think this business of being numerate that we gain from being in the university, the business of computing is something that, you know, log on to your computer and submit a transcript or to pull your transcript up or to check your grades. You know, we sat waiting for the mailman or 
letter carrier to come and hopefully going to take that envelope out of their hand before it got in the in the locked mailbox. And I think the thing that people don't take big enough advantage of in education is the arts. And that was me as an undergraduate. And then when I finally discovered, when I'd go to Europe for conferences or to give a talk, there's these big stone buildings in most of these cities that have some really old, cool paintings and statues. And I would audit art history classes because I had proximity to really smart people knew a lot about our history. And I'd sit in the front row and go, wow, look at that. And the undergraduates in the class would slowly move away from the weird old guy in the, in the front row. But, I, you know, I think many of our students are pro-degree and anti-education. They want the credential, and R Richard Wright gets credit for that phrase. They want the, the degree and what that confers upon them. After all, less than percent of the world's population has a college degree. It's still a pretty special thing, but the shortest distance between where they are and where their degree is would be what many people would, would like to do. And I think that's unfortunate. World's out there to start in and eat you up and put you in the rat race mm -hmm. as you get out. Yeah. Not that my children have followed any of my advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say that was me too up until the senior year of my last year of college. Or my senior year was my last year of college. <laughs> but up until then, that, that was me. How do I get from A to B in the shortest distance possible? Well, how things change. So given everything we've talked about so far, if you had to go back and give newly minted, newly hired assistant professor, Scott Decker, some advice, what would it be? You know, I think I'm, whatever it is, I think I'm wearing due to a combination of relationships with really good people who persisted in giving me the right advice, even when I didn't always listen. And a stable set personal relationships enabled me to invest the time that it took to get things done. I would encourage myself to spend more time with some of the packages. Early in my career, I've been really fortunate. I sat next to Patricia Branningham in the advanced grad staff course that all the doctoral students at FSU took and is a quantitative whiz, and she's so good she could even help me. And so she would help go over the homework after class and sometimes before class. And then when I got to UMSL, Carol Kofeld is a political scientist that I work with, did a lot of the deterrence work together, and she was an undergraduate math major. And then I had Dave Curry to work with, and then doctoral students whose skills out matched mine. And I guess I wish I would have stayed with it a little bit longer. And I got out of the department and worked with political scientists and sociologists and psychologists and urbanists. But I think I would have wanted to do that earlier. And it really wasn't until Richard Wright had been at UMSL five or six years that there started to be more of an international focus in the program. He had been at Cambridge. He'd spent quite a number of years in Britain, and 
so we started to go. He would take people with him to the British Criminology Conference of the ES, British Society of Criminology, sponsored. And I think because of him, I started reading British Journal of Criminology more regularly and other European journals. And now the world's a whole lot smaller than it was 25 years ago. And I don't think he by ignoring international work. But I, I think I would want have opened those avenues to other disciplines uh, a little earlier, and in particular, public health. I had some opportunities to work with the School of Public Health and the Psychiatry and Epidemiology Departments at School of Washington U, and they were, aside from having every resource in the world, they were really great colleagues. They looked at really great problems, and they were doing life course issues 20 years before criminologists an elder and, and yeah no that sounds like great advice not just for you know professors but also for grad students you know expand your network expand your skill set i think that i thought you were going to say read and i was like that's the <laughs> all the time <laughs> yeah well it's your only opportunity to have uninterrupted periods of time you know i'm ambivalent about doctoral exams and maybe it's the structure. I'm in favor of all the reading and organizing, but the structure of how you give it back, I'm not convinced those much sense or, and I feel the same way about a dissertation, you know, a 250 page, like my dissertation that was chapters one through eight from page one to page 250 and write anything like that for 15 or 20 years. And so we train people to write that, and then we expect our, you're in, you know, history or you're a novelist, great. To me, I like these short two or three paper dissertations much better because you're being trained to do what we ask people to do, and that's write articles. Yeah, that makes sense. So to wrap up, Scott, we want to sort of take a step back or really more of a giant leap back and ask you some really, really big questions. <laughs> or that is, what do you think of the current state of the discipline of criminology and where would you like to see it move towards in going forward? I think it's probably in the biggest period of transition since the growth of doctoral there were, when I went to Florida State in 1972, Michigan State, Florida State, State, Looney, Maryland's PhD might have done, there were a handful of crim programs. Frankly, they did not enjoy a good reputation. The criminology program at FSU, which had Gordon Waldo and Ted Cherikos and Charles Welford and Ray Jeffrey and Paul Granian, some very good people, white males, said the white male. But they didn't enjoy a very good reputation, certainly compared to the biology departments. And somewhere in the early, mid-80s, that transition happened, and criminology became more of a real science. When, when I represented UNSL at the Association of Doctoral Programs in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and that would have been in the early 90s, shortly after our PhD, 
Sherman was the group. Larry Sherman was the president of the group. And Larry was at, at Maryland at the time. And he stood up and he said, we have one big challenge to overcome. And if we don't overcome this challenge, our discipline is in trouble for the future. And that challenge was looking around at the room of all white males, with one exception, as I recall, They're not diverse, that we don't, we don't reflect the populations that the criminal justice system deals with, nor do we even reflect the communities those people come from. And Larry said, if we don't do something about this, we're going to find ourselves increasingly irrelevant, increasingly isolated, and it not only includes race and ethnicity, but it also includes gender. Now, that was at a time when I believe Maryland had two female faculty members and no people of color. And Larry fully acknowledged that. And I think now we didn't have ASC this year or ACJS, but in the preceding year, you can feel and see how dramatically the composition has changed and how that age structure, my generation is getting out. And I got my degree in 76, I'm 70 years old. Very few, some, but very few of the remaining people are, are in my age or degree cohort. And there's a real unsettling, I think, about leadership in the field. I think there's also an uncertainty about where criminology is going in, in the future. And when I got to ASU, I had a, came under one dean and then I had a new dean after two years. And we sat down to have that kind of first dean and director talk. And she said, we have the largest number of Hispanic students out of 100 X majors at ASU, or you're certainly in the top three, and you only have one Hispanic faculty member, Nancy Rodriguez. And I said, well, Dean, we have 10% of all the tenured Hispanics in the field. And she said, but you have only one Hispanic faculty member. And I said, there are 10 tenured Hispanic faculty members at doctoral programs or hiring doctoral and I said, this, is a, this isn't just an us problem. It is a discipline-wide problem. I said, but here's, here's what we're in a position to do. With, and I think, 48 or 9% of our undergraduates at ASU time were of Hispanic origin. And we're in a position to recruit our really outstanding undergraduates of color into our master's program and not our terminal master's program, our transitional master's that transitions to the PhD and be a net producer for other departments while we hire and bring in more Hispanic and African-American faculty members. Because, again, we're in a position to do this given our location in the country and the population we serve locally. Now, I... I believe there's 55 or six PhDs from ASU, and 12 are Hispanic. So that's progress. Not where it should be, but it's certainly progress. And I think that's, that's a key to the future. 
I also think that we need to be mindful of events in the world and in our cities and in our courts and in our prisons that are taking place and find a way to integrate maybe courses in social movements, maybe courses in conflict, and maybe from sociology and political science into our curricula to give our students you know, a broader perspective. My recollection is that several of the officers in the George Floyd death had college degrees. And so simply a certificate of a degree doesn't change the system. And committing to the kind of research and work in the classroom and with students and agencies that'll produce change is something that needs to be as something that we do well. But I think the key is Changing. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good answer. That's not what I was expecting you to say. I don't know what I was expecting, but. Yeah, I don't know what I was expecting either, but yeah, it was definitely not that, but I mean, that was good. <laughs> well, what, 12 years ago? Oh, no, more than that. 20, 22 years ago, one of my colleagues in St. Louis chaired the membership committee for the ASC. And at lunch, we used to go to lunch as a faculty every day. At lunch, the faculty member who chaired that committee said, did you know that more than half of the members of ASC are women? This was 22 years ago. And they said, but more than half, the median, this was it, the mean age for women who were members of ASC was 33. And the mean age for men who were members of ASC was like, 48. It was a full 10 or 15 years. So, and you see that when, when you go to the meeting and you're starting to see changes in the fellows and who gets named a fellow. And you're starting to see changes in the officers and the divisions used to not be very powerful. The two divisions that were, were the divisions of people of color and the division of women in crime. And those two were very large and now corrections is huge and policing is huge and much more of the action if you will takes place in the divisions and the division sponsored panels so much so that i would expect in the next five or six years there are going to be splinter groups that break off from sc and i would like to go and hear gang talk for a day or a day and a half i can get that at euro game but at asc you've got to go to 19 different sessions and you don't run into the the people and and that's who I want to run into. Correction and policing and gender and people of color each sponsor their own extra day and if they don't break off into subgroups there may be a day at the end or the beginning of the conference that would be for only one of those two days. Yeah. yeah. I always felt like at ASC, it was like the talks that I wanted to go to would be at the same time too, which was, which is frustrating. But Everybody's got to get on the program so they yep. get reimbursed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, I do have one more question for you, Scott. And this one's a little more focused around the research that we do with, you know, around gangs. And this is a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a long time now. And I'm sure you read it back in 2012, the chapter in the Eurogang book by, it was Matsuda 
Esbenson and Carson, where they talk about the gang definition and how we operationalize gangs and gang members. And they have this Venn diagram where they take the three that we use the most, self-nomination, so whether are you a gang member, the Eurogang definition, and whether your friends are a gang. And I still can't wrap my head around that only 9% of the people overlap with those three that are like the dom- like the predominant ways that we identify gang members in research. Like there's only a 9% overlap. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's a head scratcher for me as well. Ethnographers and people who do kind of survey work like David and I have done in, in prison settings kind of have an easy out because, you know, ask people and and that self-report is going back to the the Mary Morash days be one of the most important articles written on gangs by Mary Morash and I think it's her only work on gangs and it's rarely cited certainly doesn't get the attention I think it deserves but you know there's increasing evidence it seems to me and your mentor is right at the forefront of this that self-nomination pretty highly correlated with certainly agency and official designations of gang membership, and that the David Curry solo article in Criminology that also has Venn diagrams shows the overlap between self-report and official record designations of gang membership to be somewhere in the, as I recall, the mid to high 70s. I don't, you know, if, if I wanted to argue against and three of my favorite researchers in, in that group, I would argue that it may be an artifact of the particular data that they used. That would seem to me to be agreeing on the facts, but the interpretation might be that it's some artifact within the data. But it's curious that it, to my knowledge, hasn't been replicated and doesn't get cited much. It's kind of buried in one of those Euro gang balls. Do you have the answer? No, your your generation is going to be running the show here in a couple of years. So we're we're going to look back from our pedestals that are very low now and count on you for the answers. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of a big ask. You have your work set out for you, Jose. If I can answer that question, I think I deserve all the ASE awards. I was going to say a PhD, but (laughs) throw some awards in there. (laughs) Maybe the Game Center, the George Knox Group in Piatone, Illinois, will send you an award. Yeah, then I'll just have to find something else to research. (laughs) All right, well, that is all we have for you, Scott. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a delight to talk to you and get your history that we had no idea about and your thoughts about success and failure. Thank you. And, you know, I would say the field's in good hands. Yeah, (laughs) I do have to say I'm very happy that you accidentally stumbled upon this field because I don't know exactly where I'd be without the influence of Scott Decker. Your 96 paper on normative and collective gang stuff was one of the very first that I read and I think sort of spoke to me. That means more than, than, you know, the books. Seeing the student take interest in your work is probably the biggest reward you can get. 
So we know that you're quote unquote retired, but that doesn't mean you've stopped working. So is there anything that you would like to plug any paper or book or anything like that that's coming out that people should be on the lookout for if they're interested in gangs or policing? I'm still very fond of competing for control. When we moved across country from Arizona back to St. Louis, all my work, all my notes, all my papers in a big box and taped it. And that one, we didn't let the movers touch. That came with me. While we were in a hotel the first week or two, waiting for our house to be finished, I pulled that box open and I had those papers spread all around the hotel room and put a sign on the door, don't touch the papers. But yeah, I think competing for control. And we've got a pretty nifty piece coming out in terrorism and political violence, political science journal, political science psych. Should We got page proofs a week ago, so it should be out soon. And it compares qualitative data from a number of terrorists and a number of gang members on the process and steps for getting into their group and tries to identify if the processes are more similar or dissimilar between these two groups. And, you know, we hear lots of talk about Antifa these days and yeah. the militia groups and what's a terrorist group and what isn't. And that one is a paper I'm particularly fond of because it's got a couple of students involved. Gary LaFree is involved, one of my favorite people whose work I read and I've read always, and your mentor, David, as well. And it's a different kind of paper. We had a hard time finding a home for the paper because it's not, it doesn't fit the formula that most journals are, are looking for. Okay? So we went outside of criminology and we found a home. Sounds like a cool paper. Looking yeah, well, forward to it. We'll have to give it a read. And then last question for you, where can people find you? So... Twitter, email. Yeah, scott.decker at asu.edu. My ASU email still works, and they still have a page up for me at ASU. I think they like to call me publications in their, in their tally, which, which they're certainly happy for to do. I'm at Decker Crime on Twitter, and that's about it. I think Googling me, or as Senator McCain used to say, the Google <laughs> will turn up my view and my resume. Yeah. All right. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Yeah. Thank you again, Scott. Take care. So long. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.